You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is the word of the Lord. Well, one of the most dramatic moments in a story or a movie or a TV series is when a character faces the mirror. And they have that sort of moment of self-realization like, oh my gosh, what have I become? Jean Valjean, after he steals from the Catholic priest, he has this moment of realization. He's like, sweet Jesus, what have I done? Become a thief in the night, become a dog on the run. Uh, V in V for Vendetta, he takes off the mask and he looks in the mirror and he throws the mask and shatters the glass. Or the dramatic moment after the whole town of Bikini Bottom is searching for a wanted lunatic named the Maniac. And after countless obvious clues, SpongeBob realizes he is the Maniac. It's an extremely common storytelling device because it is one that every single one of us can relate to. What have I become? Now the truth is, for many, this is gonna be a painful realization. For many, it is painful to look in the mirror and to realize what you've become. But by God's grace, it can actually be an extremely positive realization to be able to look back and see the evidence of growth, to see the evidence of God's grace, to to see what God has done in your life, to be able to say, you know what, I'm not what I wanna be, but thank God I am not what I used to be. I have those moments where I'm like, I am nowhere what I wanna be, but thank God I am not what I used to be. And over in the 15 years that we've been a church, I feel like a lot of us have like grown up together in a lot of ways. And I look at many of the lives represented here and like, you are not what you used to be by God's grace. This mirror moment does not need to be a painful moment, but it can be a very encouraging moment because of who God is and God's involvement in our lives. Dallas Willard once said that the most important thing in your life is not what you do, it's what you become. That's what you take into eternity. 
Now, a lot of people are going to navigate through life asking, what do I want to do? Does it feel right? Does it sound good? Does it make sense to me? And they're formed and shaped by this sort of way of thinking. On the other hand, a typically religious person is going to navigate life asking this question, what do I have to do? What can I and can't I do? Is this something I'm supposed to do, or is this something I'm not supposed to do? But the Christian who is concerned with experiencing transformation asks an entirely different question and lives by an entirely different vision. Not that the other questions are bad and never necessary, but they in and of themselves are insufficient. What we are to be concerned with most is this question, what am I becoming? What am I becoming? And therefore, how does my entire life, my mind, my heart, my relationships, my time, my resources, my energy need to come into alignment with the person that God has called me to be? So today, we are going to be looking at a topic that I believe is vital for every Christian to understand and to embrace. Peter later mentions that this is something that we are going to be needing to constantly uh, be reminded of. He's going to commit the rest of his life to this and reiterating it, and it is something that we call today spiritual formation. What is spiritual formation? Spiritual formation is about cooperating with the Holy Spirit in his ongoing work of transforming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's the spirit-driven process of experiencing true and lasting change, that highly sought-after but rarely obtained experience of true and lasting change. So I was recently driving, and I had turned on the Spotify playlist, New Indie, because I have a 16-year-old, and I need to stay connected to my 16-year-old through Indie references, and so I'm listening to uh, this playlist, and a song comes on by an artist I'm not familiar with, never heard them, never heard the song before. And in it, they're talking about having these good days where they feel comfortable in their skin, they like who they are. And then they have bad days where they're self-conscious, and they wish they could, quote, disembody and become somebody else. They say there's something inside that really hurts every time. I've tried every single pill to help me chill and I'm not satisfied. One minute I'll be, well, they say a different word, messed up, and the next minute I'm fine. And they go on to say something in the chorus that I think is remarkably insightful. In fact, I think if they knew that I was referencing this line in a sermon, they probably would not be very happy about that, but so what? And they go on in the chorus to say this, don't romanticize my life, I need a redesign. Do not romanticize my life, I need a redesign. And I thought about it, I think that this is what is behind so much of what we experience in our lives and so much, you know, behind so much what we, of what we see happening around us in culture today. The things that we may not even be able to make sense of, the need to be redesigned, or the biblical language, the need to be transformed. I think, and I tread lightly on this, but I think that this is a significant driving force behind the rise in transgenderism. And I think this is a significant force behind the ever-growing, ever-popular, booming cosmetic surgery industry. 
And I think this is a significant force behind polarized political identities and so many other cultural phenomenons that are occurring around us today. It's that thought, I need that impulse. I need a redesign. I need change. The point that this young artist makes is something that we all can relate to in some way, and it's that desire to be made new, to become someone new, to step away from the old us that we find harder and harder to identify with and to emerge as someone different. And what I want us to understand is that the Bible shows us that this desire in and of itself is not a wrong desire, it's actually a good desire, but it's also a desire that can become very misdirected. Timothy Lane said that there's nothing more obvious than the need for change, and yet there's nothing less obvious than what needs to change and how that change happens. And so this portion of 2 Peter gives us a vision for what that change in our lives ought to look like and how it can actually happen, how we can experience true and lasting change. And so the vision of change that we're given here, here's kind of a summary statement, is this. We can share in God's divine nature by God's divine power that is now accessed through diligent practices. Divine nature, divine power, diligent practices. Let's begin with God's divine nature. This is what change ought to look like. And in order to grasp this really big idea, let's go all the way back to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, we're told, so God created man or humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So of all the created living things, humanity alone was made to reflect God. It doesn't matter how much you love your puppy or how how much you love animals, it's humanity alone that is intended to fill that role as image bearer of God. And we were made to share in God's divine nature. Now, what does it mean to be an image bearer of God? It does not necessarily mean uh, you know, anatomical resemblance. It's not like, oh, you like, you have God's ears. That's so cute. Or like, oh, you got God's nose. You look just like him. It's about reflecting his character and how he relates to the world and others. It's about God's moral excellence. It's about his love, his creative beauty, his generous uh, generosity, and his justice being expressed through human lives. And that is the mold that whether we recognize it or not, that we, every single one of us, was made for. And this is the shape that we are going to be restless and feel out of place until we return to it. But as we know, as we read on in Genesis 3, that rebellion, through rebellion and sin, that image of God was distorted, like a a mirror that was then shattered not lost entirely, all people, regardless of creed, are still image bearers of God, and all people, no matter how broken their life has gotten, retain that dignity. But as we know, the image was severely distorted. And the sad irony is that in humanity's attempt to become like God, that was the temptation, the serpent told Eve, 
if you eat of the tree of this fruit, or the fruit of this tree, you will be like God. But the sad irony is that in humanity's attempt to become like God, it sent us on this downward spiral of becoming less and less like him. The more you try to be like God on your own, the less you will reflect him. In Oscar Wilde's a picture, or picture of Dorian Gray, the story follows the life of a young man who is known as being youthful and handsome, but he is plagued by this idea of aging. He's like terrified of one day being old and not looking as young and youthful as he is. And so he figures out a way to, to curse a portrait of himself. He forfeits his soul and in order to stay youthful. And so as he ages, the portrait ages, but he stays youthful. So Dorian begins to live an extremely wild life, seeking pleasures uh, at other people's expenses. He's leaving this huge wake of destroyed lives behind him. But instead of aging and bearing the marks of living a wild lifestyle, he remained unchanged. But the portrait got older and uglier. It revealed an uglier, meaner Dorian. And so after hiding the picture, he dives headfirst into a life of sin and corruption and murder and, and cover-up. And over the years, as his life gets uglier, the painting gets uglier, but he just stays handsome and youthful. And so after a series of deaths and cover-ups, he finally goes to face the portrait, to see what has become of him, to see the distorted image, and he realizes how ugly his life has gotten. And so he determines, I need to change. This has gotten out of hand. And so what he determines to do is to turn his life around. But instead of humbly confessing, instead of repenting of his ways, he simply tries to amend his life by doing good, by balancing the scales. I've done all these bad things, then I'll do some good things. And so he sets out to, to live a good life, to do the right things, even sacrifices for others. And in some ways, his life is beginning to look a little bit better. And after some time, hoping that he's sort of reversed the trend, the picture got uglier as he lived uglier, then it must mean the picture must get better as he lives better. And he goes to confront the portrait, and to his dismay, it's even uglier and more horrific than before. And the answer is because he discovered his true motives. His true motives behind his behavior change, behind his sacrificing for others, it was still selfish. And despite all of his actions, the painting couldn't lie. He was trying to amend the image by himself for himself. The more we try to repair the distorted image on our own, the more we try to change our own lives and amend our own lives, the more and more distorted it gets. But, as we see here in 2 Peter, the scriptures actually offer us an entirely different way to experience change. Let's look at this passage again. Simeon Peter, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God 
and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us, the emphasis here I'm putting on these words, granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. It is not a change that can be achieved. Peter is describing a change that must be received and specifically received with the open hands of faith. I cannot, but Lord, you can. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that Jesus himself, the perfect an exact expression of God's nature came to be what came to be and to do what we could never be or ever do. Athanasius in the early church put it this way: He became what we are so that we might become what he is. What's the story of the gospel? It's that Jesus entered into humanity. He took on body and flesh and humanity. He became one of us in order to fulfill the role of image bearer that every single one of us had failed in. And he came to restore us to a life that we were designed for, one that's described here as a life of glory and excellence. Jesus allowed himself to become that distorted image on the cross. Jesus became the shattered mirror, so to speak, so that we could be remade and so that we could once again share in God's divine nature like we were always intended to live. By faith, we become united in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which means that our old selves are put to death, they're crucified. The, the old evil desires of the flesh no longer rule over us and now the broken image that once was us no longer defines us. It is a clean break from the old. And through faith we are raised to new life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a life marked by the very excellence or as the Bible describes it, the very righteousness of Jesus. And on, on top of all of this, he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit so that everything that God has provided for us in Jesus Christ can become real and experienced in the broken mess that is our everyday life. That changes everything. That changes everything. And what I want to do is I want to discuss two ways that this changes everything. Number one, it should change our goals and ambitions entirely. Think about this. If we truly believe that this is what God intends to do in our lives, then our five-year plans and our vision boards and our dreams, they all are about reprioritizing everything around this. What it means then is financial goals and relational goals and career goals now serve this very purpose sharing in God's divine nature. Think about this. This makes the American dream sound like a silly, cheap replacement. The American dream does not hold a candle to the vision that has just been laid out to us in these four verses. 
because of what I'm becoming, because of what you're becoming, because of what we are becoming is far more important than success. And it's far more important than wealth or health or recognition or fame. I am, the Bible tells me, day by day becoming more and more like the eternal son of God for the glory of God and his renown in the earth. What on earth could possibly be more important than this? What on earth could be more pressing than this? If you find something, please tell us. This is God's highest goal for our lives, and it ought to be our highest goal. Secondly, it changes the way that we approach others. C.S. Lewis always says it best. He said it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. In other words, you could potentially become a little bit obsessed thinking about what you're going to become. But it is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. Remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person that you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. It's in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and thoughtfulness proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, he says, your neighbor, look around real quick, look to your left, look to your right. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Think about how this changes the way that we look at others. Think about how this changes the way that we care for others. The divine nature. But let's look secondly at divine power. And this is how change happens in our lives. And what we're told here in, in 2 Peter is that faith in Jesus grants us access to a new life of like unimaginable significance and freedom. Peter describes it in verse 4 like this. His precious and very great promises. This is a, a life of abundance. God's Promises, God promises us everything that we could ever need in order for us to become the truest versions of ourselves. Like God is saying, I am all in and I'm all invested in your transformation. But what you'll find is that these promises will often be misunderstood and misapplied. In my religious upbringing, in the faith tradition that I grew up in, Everyone always talked about cling to the promises, claim the promises of God. It's about the promises of God. Don't forget the promises of God. But what does that mean? What promises are you talking about? Because if those promises are misunderstood and misapplied, they're not going to be experienced like Peter's describing here. And what we have to recognize is that these promises, listen, these promises are not concerned with wealth with how much wealth we accumulate. They're not concerned with the success that we achieve. It's not concerned with the physical beauty that we obtained. It's not concerned with the sort of prosperity we experience. In fact, if anything, the Bible warns us that these things can get in the way of the ultimate goal of our lives. But instead, look with me in verse three. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to what? 
life and godliness. There it is. That's the promise that we cling to. In other words, I want you to visualize this right now in your heart and your minds. What is being described here is that the storehouses of heaven, whatever those look like, the storehouses of heaven are now open, wide open, and the full measure of God's power through his Holy Spirit has been unleashed into the world. But as Peter describes here, it is being completely directed towards this one single highest priority. You and me becoming like Jesus. That's the promise and that's the power that we cling to. Amen? Oswald Chambers put it this way. I always leave it to other people to say the harder things that I'm not willing to say myself. We must continually remind ourselves of the purpose of life. Reality, we've got to continually remind ourselves of this. We are not destined to happiness. We are not destined to health. We are destined to holiness. And this is what God forever promises to provide for our holiness, our growth in godliness. Now, unfortunately, the area that God has promised to provide for us most is often the area that we rely on our own methods the most. It is very easy to fall back into a mindset that has been present with the Christian church all the way back to the first century, and it goes something like this. It's God who saves my life, but now it's up to me to figure out how to change it. Paul would have some very unkind words for the Galatians, you foolish Galatians. You think what was be began in the spirit you're going to now perfect in the flesh? Who has bewitched you? Who, what got into you? The point is this, that it takes just as much resurrection power to change our lives as it did to save our lives. But the good news is that that is what we've been given in the person of the Holy Spirit. Paul put it this way in Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. God doesn't just show you what you need to become. He provides you with everything necessary to become it. Amen? Here's a question. How do we access this? How do we access these, quote, precious and great promises? How does this kind of significant change come into our lives? Where does the power from on high break in to our daily lives? Peter's answer may be surprising to us. Peter's answer is that it's accessed through diligent practices. Look at me in the very following verses 11 through, or 5 through 11. For this reason, in, in other words, in light of all these things that I've just told you, make every effort to supplement, or the word literally means to minister, 
to your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, then they keep you, listen to these words, from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He gets even sharper. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, here's the deal, brothers and sisters, but be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, not make it possible, but to prove it. For if you what? Practice these qualities you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here's the deal. God is the one who is making us a people of virtue. God is making us a people of knowledge and self-control and godliness and love. But the scriptures make it absolutely clear these qualities increase in us as we diligently give ourselves to practicing them. Let me put it simply. You will begin to reflect what you repeat. What you do over and over and over and over and over again will take root in your life for better or for worse. One more illustration. In the original Matrix movie from the late 90s, Keanu Reeves' character Neo joins a group of rebels that breaks free from the matrix. That would take way too long to explain, so you just have to trust me on that. He joins a crew uh, that's led by a guy named Morpheus. I love the reference there. Morpheus, who's helping him get accustomed to new life free from the matrix, free from the corruption and bondage of the matrix. And because Neo is like the chosen one, he's got this like special you know, purpose and prophecy over his life, he must be trained to acquire these special fighting skills. And so, how does he attain these special fighting skills? He literally lays back, and Michelle's like, worst nightmare, a cord is stuck into the back of his brain. And then, he just like lays back and these skills and abilities are loaded into him like a program. And then after he's done, Morpheus comes over and, fa and Neo famously says, I know Kung Fu. <laughs> and he proves that he knows Kung Fu. So here's the deal. Uh, silly illustration, but here's the deal. Many of us approach Christianity with the same sort of expectation. That when we trust in Jesus and we receive the Holy Spirit into our lives, that boom, all these new habits and new behaviors and new ways of thinking and new ways of acting are going to be downloaded into us like a new program into our spiritual mainframe and it's going to be like a program override. Now, all of a sudden, we have all these abilities to live and love like Jesus. No more bad habits, no more sinful tendencies, just all new qualities. How's that going for you? And when it doesn't happen, or at least I haven't met someone yet, we're then left confused and questioning, well, did Jesus really even come to my life? 
Like I see all these promises of like transformation. Did I even receive Jesus? Do I even have the Holy Spirit? Am I even saved? Is change even possible? And for the Christian, the answer is yes. But it's not going to appear out of thin air. And it's not going to be from us literally laying back stagnant and just receiving some sort of spiritual download from heaven. And ask anyone who's been walking with Jesus a long time, it is definitely not going to happen instantly and overnight. Because as we see in Scripture, God's transforming power breaks through through diligent practices that are incorporated into our daily lives. Who we are, what we're becoming, is often not the result of like big, memorable moments. Who we are and what we're becoming is often shaped and formed through the daily, overlooked stuff of normal life. It happens, according to Peter here, through making everyday decisions with integrity down to the smallest detail. That's what virtue means, integrity. And it's through daily immersing ourselves in the knowledge of God that has been given to us in the word of God. And it's through practicing self-control, which means denying ourselves of that which is not going to promote growth and giving ourselves intentionally to that which does promote growth. It's through steadfastness. You know what that word means? It means stick with itness. It means staying power. How do we grow? We grow by not giving up on things and people when it gets weird or hard or boring or whatever flashier thing comes along that we get attached to or attracted to and we want to move on. No, steadfastness means we stick with it. It's through devotion to God and commitment to his moral vision. It's through daily acts of sacrificial love. It's through relationships marked by care and affection. These are the places that the Spirit directs his power. I come from, again, a faith tradition that was all about the Spirit's power unleashed. Very rarely did I hear about the Spirit's power unleashed into daily practices. And yet, Peter's saying this is where it's pointed. As we form these godly habits over time, here's what happens. Those godly habits weaken the old sinful habits and then promote new Christ-like character. Godliness is formed in us. A new nature emerges. The divine nature takes shape. And through the Lenten season, what we're going to do in in, uh, the week coming up We're going to be focusing on the practice of prayer and how we as God's people and the many, many, many generations before us have been significantly shaped in our faith and grow into Christ-likeness and godliness through prayer. And so here's my ask of you. Stay engaged in this season. Stay open to growing in prayer. Stay open to God stretching your prayer life and invite someone to come and to participate as well. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you.